The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Environmentalists are pushing for extreme changes to our way of living, changing our electricity grid and transportation so that we're dependent on so-called green energy. As a case in point, the city of Ottawa, Canada, where I and Mary Jean, my co-host, live, introduced an all-encompassing climate change master plan that will change the city for the worse. For a city of a million people where winters often drop to negative 30 degrees Celsius, this will have devastating consequences. (laughs) Yes, for sure. And the widespread use of wind power. Imagine introducing 710 wind turbines as tall as the Statue of Liberty will drastically alter the city's landscape. And using batteries, batteries to back up wind and solar power is completely infeasible and can lead to even greater environmental damage. And there's also terrible consequences when mining the minerals needed for these massive batteries supporting countries such as China, where human rights are regularly violated, and the Congo, where children are used to work cobalt mines. And all this for a pseudoscience cause that makes environmentalists feel better about themselves. Today, we have Professor Howard Howard Hayden with us to take a deep dive into the city of Ottawa's climate change plans and the harms it will cause. So Mary Jean, could you introduce our guest today? For sure. Dr. Howard Hayden is University of Connecticut Professor of Physics Emeritus. A Colorado native, Professor Hayden earns bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in physics from the University of Denver. Following this, Howard went to the University of Connecticut, where he spent 32 years teaching and doing research. In particular, he did accelerator-based atomic physics. Today, his research interest includes energy for society, fossil fuels, nuclear, hydro, wind, biomass, photovoltaics, and solar heating. Professor Hayden is the author of several books, including The Solar Fraud, Why Solar Energy Won't Run the World, A Primer on CO2 and Climate, A Primer on Renewable Energy, and Fast Ackwards, How Climate Alarmists Confuse Cause with Effect. Dr. Hayden is also the editor of The Energy Advocate, a monthly newsletter promoting energy and technology, which has been running for 26 years. So welcome to the show, Professor Hayden. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, that book, Bass Ackwards, I love it. (laughs) You know, we'll be, as I said, we will be, or Mary Jean said, we will be linking to all those books. And I really encourage people to have a look at Bass Ackwards. You know, Howard has a wonderful sense of humor combining good, solid science with uh, you know, with puns. You're a punster, aren't you, Howard? <laughs> I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so, Howard, what do you think of the wind turbine component of the city of Ottawa's climate change plan? Well, start with a climate change plan. You're going to have an absolutely trivial uh, effect on the climate no matter what you do. Uh, so it's... Uh, uh, Wind is really a non-solution to a non-problem because the climate is not a problem and the wind is not a solution. But let me say just a little bit about uh, wind power. Uh, One of the books you didn't mention uh, is that I wrote a book called um, Energy, a textbook. Okay. 
uh, it's there's nothing in there that is beyond the comprehension of a sharp eighth grader or an average college student. <laughs> uh, but it explains it's it's just single topic. It's it's all about energy, and we discuss wind and solar and nuclear and coal. I mean, with coal and oil and natural gas, what do you want to know? You want to know what the energy content is. With nuclear, is the same. With wind, you want to know how much power you get if there's how much wind and your instrument is so big and so forth. So let's start with some of the uh, aspects of wind machine. Uh, you got a big thing standing up in the air, but what really matters is the intercepted area, okay? And the wind speed. Now, the power that's in the wind, so to speak, is proportional to the third power of the velocity. That is the velocity times the velocity times the velocity. So if you make a 10% change in wind speed, that uh, makes about a 30% change in the amount of power you get out of it. Ah. Okay, so start with this. If you, you want to intercept more area, so you double the diameter of your wind turbine. If you do that, you get four times as much power out of the wind turbine. But because the wind turbine's job is to extract energy from the wind. So the wind comes in at one speed and leaves at a lower speed. So for that reason, you have to spread the wind turbines out. And if you want to, uh, if you double the diameter of the wind turbine, uh, you have to put the wind turbines twice as far away in both directions. So that in a big wind installation, you have, uh, you have to have four times as much area. Mm. Right. If you do, okay. So you get four times as much power in four times as much land area. So the power per unit land area is invariant. It's constant. Mm. Oh, wow. So in sites that are considered excellent, wind turbines produce five kilowatts per acre or 12 and a half kilowatts per hectare. Okay. You people in Canada are kind of uh, uh, bilingual in that respect. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. it's, we'll, we'll stick with the, uh, uh, the with uh, the metric units. <clears throat> so let's see, I think you said the, uh, what's the population of, uh, of Ottawa? It's a million. It's a million. Okay, so that means uh, that on average, you're going to have to have 1.3 billion watts averaged around the clock around the year. Hmm. Okay, now um, that is going to take something like uh, 360, 380, something like that square miles. So multiply that by um, uh, 1.6 by two and a half, and you get the so you're talking about a thousand square kilometers <laughs> in order to get that much power. That's that's just getting the average power. Uh, it turns out <clears throat> that 
the amount of power uh, you get out of a wind turbine is about one third of what it says on the nameplate. That is, if you have a uh, uh, one megawatt wind turbine, which is pretty darn big, uh, you average around the year about a third. It's really 35%. It's by design. Mm. Now, let me explain that to you. Here is one way to get zero percent what's called capacity factor that's how much you actually get divided by what's on the nameplate suppose you take a pinwheel and you attach it to a one megawatt generator you get nothing okay yeah (laughs) now let's go to the other end let's take a huge windmill uh, let's say uh, 50 meters diameter or something like that and you attach it to a generator that you get, you steal off a bicycle, (laughs) all right? You're always able to get that one watt. So you have 100% capacity factor. So there are two very stupid engineering designs that I've described for you, okay? Right. So somewhere, I mean, what, what really matters is sort of the ratio of the size of the wind turbine to the size of the generator. I mean, that's the thing that matters. And so the engineers have found out that the best engineering compromise is to shoot for about a 35% capacity factor. And that's the best cost-effective way to do it. And so that's kind of what you get. I mean, between 0% and 100%, you got to find some sort of a good engineering compromise, and it's about 35%. Okay. So I'm, I haven't been much in Ottawa. Uh, does the wind always blow about uh, oh, 20 meters a second or something like that? Well, I'm looking outside right now, and it is, but I think most of the time it's somewhere different. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere different. Okay, now... Let's talk about the behavior of the wind turbine. And I'll be discussing velocities in meters per second. Uh, at no wind, you get no power. And the wind comes up and it speeds up, and you still get no power until you're around four or five meters per second. And then it starts producing power, and the power then increases very dramatically with wind speed. Because you'll get to full full power at about 13, 14, just depending upon the manufacturer, 13 or 14 uh, meters per second, you'll get full power. Mm-hmm. And then you get full power, uh, even though there's a heck of a lot more power in the wind, you, you still hold that nameplate power constant, which means your efficiency, your percentage of the energy that's in the wind that you get is getting smaller and smaller because there's so much power in the wind. You go up to 25 meters a second. Oh, you don't really want to blow that machine apart. So you go to full feather and shut the machine down because over 25 meters a second, you blow the thing apart. Now, just about every wind turbine you find, but manufactured by any manufacturer, sort of follows that rule. 
Okay. And so okay. it's around 20 so meters. That's just the way those the way those are made. Now, uh solar, uh does it ever get dark? <laughs> yeah, just occasionally, yeah. like every day. <laughs> and do you ever ever have any short nights like in the winter? I mean uh, short days like in the winter? Oh okay. yeah. Now imagine a bunch of uh, cloudy, foggy days in the winter when you don't get much sunlight anyway, and you're going to depend on wind because wind doesn't care if it's night or day. It only cares if the wind is, is blowing. The question is, let's imagine that you have some storage and you got to produce 1.3 billion watts average around the clock and let's say you want to do this for how many days? How many still days do you have in the winter? Well, maybe seven in a row. Maybe maybe a week in a row. Yeah. And then maybe you'll have two days when it's pretty windy or something. And in those two days, you have to charge up to put enough energy into those batteries that they'll last through another week mm -hmm. so those you really have to have a heck of a lot of input power and the batteries have to be able to be charged at that rate uh, because you you're, you sometimes have to do a lot of charging in a very short time and they have to last a long time and those batteries have to produce power that is 1.3 billion watts on the average, but it's going to be higher. It might be uh, 2 billion watts to handle the, the peak load that comes along. And I'm, I don't know if it's 2 or well, 1.8 or something like that, but you get the yeah. idea. It's a lot of batteries. <laughs> that's a lot of batteries. Now, starting a car, a battery that starts your car, uh, holds about one one kilowatt hour one mm -hmm. kilowatt hour okay and uh, for starting it it produces about 200 amps at about 12 volts so that's around 2400 watts or 2.4 kilowatts something like that. you know it's that ballpark mm -hmm. um we're talking a couple thousand watts versus couple billion watts you get the idea i mean you're talking yeah. about now this is not saying that it cannot physically be done mm -hmm. i mean you could in principle have all this stuff but, but it's going to be very very expensive and it's going to be very very um environmentally impactful let's call it that way yeah so my math says that it would be a million batteries like ones in your car if you ran it on batteries like ones yeah. in your car. Yeah, exactly right. Now, where do you get those batteries? And uh, Mary Jean has commented that uh, a lot of the battery materials come from uh, places like the Congo and China. Yeah. Um, now, everyone sort of likes lithium batteries and lithium batteries are lightweight because lithium is simultaneously the the highest on the electromotive series that you may, may remember from chemistry and it's also the lightest metal 
but the battery is not just lithium. It has stuff like cobalt and phosphorus and various other things in it. It's not quite a simple thing uh, as just lithium. Uh, but anyway, uh, those batteries are the ones that you want to use for transportation because of the lightest weight. You want the lightest weight for transportation. For stationary purposes, you don't care so much. But you could use lead-acid batteries. You could use iron-nickel batteries that they used in the submarines in World War II. Uh, but it's, just, it's just a question of putting together the battery, putting together the materials, and meeting all the specs. And it can be confounded expensive. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't matter if it weighs a lot in the case of the submarine. Yeah. Yeah, well, if the wind ever comes up, it won't blow them away if they're made of lead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So. But we kind of touched on uh, why the wind and solar power requires such extensive backup power. Do you want to maybe elaborate on why is the use of batteries to back up wind and solar power infeasible? Well, you know, it it can be done. But it's just it just takes so much. That's that's the main issue here. And when these people, I've looked at a lot of plans for backup, and none of them, not one, works. I mean, the the largest battery installation in the world. Uh, well, this is like two years ago or something like that, was put into backup some wind installation in uh, in Australia. And it would hold enough energy to last for something like uh, two hours in this little town. Mm. Okay, now two hours, you may notice, is a little shy of two weeks or a week. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, it's, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. But the... It will do absolutely nothing, zero, to affect the climate. And it's just, it's demented to think that it will. <laughs> well, do you think the environmentalists know this? And perhaps they're just simply trying to make it so that we don't have very much energy, that we don't have the ability to drive cars. Like, are they truly ignorant of the realities that you just pointed out? Or do they recognize that and are trying to trick us into a situation where we'll just have very little energy. Well, I'd say it's either stupid or malicious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's hardly, there's just no other way to explain it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it seems like some people are certainly aware of the consequences of this, but they don't want others to uh, really realize the extent of the problems of this and cause. Mm-hmm. That mm -hmm. uh, could be. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't like getting into mind reading games. Yeah, like, yeah, why exactly. did he do that? I have no idea. I don't even yeah. care. All I know is the consequences are bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the point. So, so it's either just stupid or malicious. Um, and, and I guess basically, as you say, it doesn't really matter why they're doing it. The fact is it doesn't work at minus 30. And if a city of a million people, we're out of power within, well, two hours, you're saying, in the case of that town, if we're relying on batteries. So so I guess the, the main backup would be, what, natural gas? Because it can fluctuate up and down quickly? Right, yeah, uh, natural gas uh, and the hydro uh, can be turned on rather quickly. And mm -hmm. the reason is you go to a hydro dam, 
and they got a whole bunch of individual generators. Okay, so th they run the generators at full power or they're off, one or the other. Okay, so if you need more power, you open up the valve and that generator now works. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's kind of the way they run. And they can be turned on in a New York minute. Um, if you look at the capacity factor of uh, various dams around, uh, I, I recently looked at Hoover Dam and uh, Grand Coulee, which is up in the northwest, which and they have got a lot of water coming down the Columbia. And the capacity factors of those are in the range of uh, you know twenty to thirty five percent. Oh, and the reason, the reason is, is so because they're used for peaking. You know, they're not used around the clock to provide steady power, uh, but they can turn on, produce a whole lot of power. And when they produce a whole lot of power, the water in the lake behind them actually goes down a little bit. And then they, they shut them off when they don't need them so much and the water builds back up so that the, the, the power rating, uh, you know, is, is, is high, so they can do a lot of backup. Um, but the, uh, the, the water flow is what the water flow is, and you can only deal with how much water you got and how much elevation you got. Mm -hmm. so. Well, there's a lady locally here who's having pump storage put just beside her house. And she's not very happy about that. <laughs> I mean, that's that that's a form of battery storage in a way, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Uh, in the, in the U.S., we have I I can't remember uh, how many, yeah, maybe twenty, thirty, or so different places that have pumped storage, and that is when there's when there's some excess power available on the line, and it's not hydropower, by the way. They pump water uphill, and then. When the demand comes high, then they run it down through the generators. And they have, uh, just depending on how far it is from the lower reservoir to the higher reservoir and, uh, and so forth, and how much pumping you got and how much friction there is in the lines and what the efficiencies of all things are, the over the year, the round trip efficiency, uh, it can be as low as 50% and maybe as high as 75 or 80%. Oh, okay. uh, if you look up at the uh, EIA, the Energy Information Administration, uh, you will find that, that these have a negative energy. In other oh, words, yeah. they have a net consumption of energy, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a storage mechanism. And, there are places that, that they have it. I mean, for example, we have a place in Colorado called Twin Lakes. Guess what they have? Twin Lakes, low, low reservoir and high reservoir. And then yeah. there was a place up in Massachusetts so that I recall where uh, up in the hills they had uh, a high reservoir. And then they use uh, they exchange water with the Connecticut River. Uh, because the Connecticut River's got a lot of water in it. You know, it's, you don't need a lake, you need water. Mm -hmm, it's got right. a lot of flow. So, yeah. But now, anyway, uh, you asked about the natural gas. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, I think it's General Electric uh, makes some pretty big generators. 
that can go from zero to full power in 15 minutes. Hmm. And, and you know that's that's pretty fast. They can they can ramp up in in, in a big hurry. But the best way to use natural gas is to use combined cycle. And now in a combined cycle thing, you're using an engine that's about like the one that's in your jet plane, except that it hasn't got the bypass to, to serving as a fan. But mm -hmm. you use these things in a stationary position. And they have made some, the, 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 in, the guts of these things are made with some materials that can extend extremely high temperatures. And the exhaust comes out at very high temperature. So what they do is they channel right. that through some kind of ducting, and then they put in some additional heat to run a steam cycle. And the overall efficiency, that is how much energy you got, get out in the force in the form of electricity, uh, compared to the amount of energy in the fuel, well, that winds up being up in the 60% range. Mm -hmm. But okay. without that thermal cycle, and you don't get that thermal cycle for quick on, quick off, without that thermal cycle, uh, you the efficiencies are running more like forty uh, percent. Okay, so which do they use a combined cycle or the single cycle? Well, it depends. Backup. It, it uh, for backup they have to use the single cycle because, oh, because of the ramp because, up time. See, they uh, there's so much thermal inertia in the steam system that you have to keep things you have to keep things really hot all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you let it cool down, then you just don't get much power out of the, out of the steam cycle. You have to have, uh, well, for, for, the, for the backup, they use uh, fast, fast startup. But for, let's call it base load, they, they use combined cycle. And that mm -hmm. works out pretty well. Well, yeah. Now, if we compare using gas turbines as a backup to wind and solar, where we can't use a combined cycle with a normal base load combined cycle gas turbine, surely we're producing a lot more pollution in the case of the non-combined cycle. Well, I, the, the natural gas burns awfully clean. And mm -hmm. uh, what comes out of a natural gas uh, chimney is H2O, otherwise known as water, and CO2, carbon carbon dioxide uh of course there is more carbon dioxide but that that is not a problem mm -hmm. the co2 is not a problem it has <laughs> in other words the co2 has done almost all the warming it can do mm -hmm. uh, by the time it's up to you know like uh 80% of what we have in the air right now. It's pretty much mm -hmm. shot its wad, so to speak. Well, just before we go to break, so just to drill down then, it's a lot better to use a gas turbine as a combined cycle independent of wind turbines than it is to try to use it as uh, a backup for wind turbines. It's better to just use it without the wind turbines. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's much better off. In other words, when you put up those wind turbines, well, let's, let's look at it uh, from a standpoint of economics first. You build a power plant with the expectation that 
you're going to use these these motors, engines, whatever you've got in there, a certain number of hours in a year. Now you put up a bunch of wind turbines and produce power by when you can't by those things. Then you cut down on the duty cycle of your uh, machines and you cut down on the income you can get from them. And the only way you can do it then is to raise the price. And mm-hmm. it's just not a bright way to go. For sure. On that note, we have to go for a break. Our guest today has been Dr. Howard Hayden, University of Connecticut Professor of Physics Emeritus. He's the editor of the Energy Advocate, which we'll link to under the podcast when it goes up on Monday. So we'll be right back after the break. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track, in an easy, effective, and very tasty way. Switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discussed the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD 
for 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements, that don't work. REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. back with Dr. Howard Hayden, editor of The Energy Advocate, a monthly newsletter promoting energy and technology that's been running for 26 years. So over to you, Mary Jean. Yeah, so the next thing we want to talk about is how often and severe do you think blackouts would happen if Ottawa's plan were enacted? Well, it's <clears throat> it's it's a little bit hard to say, uh, but um, with you're you're just not going to get a uh, a strong system unless you have totally massive backup, and uh, from what I see, uh, Ottawa Ottawa's plan is somewhere near between zero and none for backup, and so uh, I think it's just a foolish thing to begin with. Uh, so you should just continue to use. Uh, coal and nuclear and natural gas and, and use electricity from from those sources That's yeah now, when you look at nuclear i mean these small modular reactors should be ready in a few years right well i i think so i think they should and there's a big advantage in them uh, let's take take ottawa for example if you had a uh, a standard size nuke which is somewhere around 1.3 billion watts. Uh, on average, that would handle Ottawa. It wouldn't mm -hmm. handle a peak. It would be excessive in the daytime. And you like to run nukes steadily, full power all the time. 
Um, so <clears throat> if you have instead a bunch of reactors that are a good deal smaller, let's say a quarter of a billion watts, so you use six of those things. So you now you have one and a half billion watts available when you need it. Um, but uh, the, now the nice thing about these, these reactors, the uh, small modulars, is that they are designed to be constant temperature. So you got them buried in the ground and you're taking some power out. You're running your city on this thing. You shut off the power output. And what happens is that the temperature doesn't rise. Temperature remains constant. And this is a natural phenomenon that's, that's built. And in fact, it's, it's kind of built into uh, reactors generally. And that is that it depends on the uh, speed or the energy of the, of the neutrons. And if the temperature goes up, those neutrons are moving faster. And if they're moving faster, they're not absorbed by the uranium nucleus as much. And mm -hmm. so there's a tendency to cool down. I mean, for example, when they took out the first nuclear sub and they, well, on the second trip, they went out and this time they were permitted to crank up the speed a little bit. So all they did was open the steam valve open the steam valve, things turned faster, but the return uh, water was cooler. And when the return water was cooler, that increased the reaction rate uh, because the neutrons were cooled down and they were absorbed faster. So it's a negative feedback. And for people who are not in the engineering field, that means corrective feedback. Mm -hmm. So it just held at a constant temperature. So they're pretty and safe from that, that point of view. And the small nuclear reactors would be that way. So if you had a bunch of small reactors powering Ottawa, then uh, if you need more power, you just turn more on. If you need less power, you just shut something off. And it, it, it works that way. So mm -hmm. that, that, would, that would work out nicely, I think. Yeah, the phobia against nuclear doesn't seem rational, does it? I mean... Well, know, never we, has been. Yeah, because we hear about you know radioactive waste, dangerous for millions of years. But isn't the it is isn't it the low level waste that's radioactive for millions of years, which isn't that dangerous in the first place? Yeah. Um, let's uh, first. I want to sort of put a picture in the minds of all the people who are listening. There's a photograph that I saw uh, a few years ago. Of the of a bunch of waste casks at Zion, which is a nuclear power station that was being decommissioned in, I think, Illinois. And what they did, others, I would say, way, way less than one hectare on concrete pad. Mm -hmm. and there are a bunch of these casks standing up there, and there's what they're 19 feet tall, like that, like six meters. And those casks contain 100% of the spent fuel 
which contains 100% of the radioactive byproducts from running two large nuclear reactors around the clock for over 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. Okay. So that you could put all of those casks easily into part of a coal train that's coming by here. We get these coal trains running by here that have 120, 130 cars. But these, this would take up, wouldn't take up that many cars. Uh, but one of those big coal trains runs a big coal-fired power plant. So, so, so anyway, there's uh, to pretend that you can't handle that kind of waste is, is a little bit on the nut side. And by the way, uh, one of the things I like about the uh, nuclear reactors in Canada is is they it's called the can do reactor. Right, can do. <laughs> what they use is deuterated water. That's where some or all of the hydrogen that's in the water, H2O, is the hydrogen is replaced by deuterium, which is a non-radioactive isotope of, uh, of hydrogen. And what it does is allows you to use uh, uranium without any enrichment. Now, uranium is uh, U-238 and U-235, uh, and it's the, the fissile part that's used in most reactors is uranium-235, but it's only seven-tenths of one percent of all uranium. And the, uh, the other 99.3% is uranium-238. So anyway, the deuterated uh, water uh, can do, D-U, uh, makes it very good for uh, you know, using all of the energy that you can get out of uranium. You don't have to go to, mm -hmm. to uh, enrichment and so forth. Anyway, it's, that's a good thing uh, to do. Mm -hmm. you really, I, I think you probably ought to do it. So what about long-term waste storage? Would you bother to stick it under the Canadian shield or do you just leave it on the surface? Well, uh, what I, if I ran the zoo, uh, I would find some long-term storage for it and then wait around uh, for a long time. I mean, a few centuries, like four centuries, you're down to the amount of radioactivity in the ore that the ore had to begin with. Oh. So there's some long-term radioactive, uh, there's some, yes, some of the isotopes in there have got really, really long half-lives, but it's not the half-lives, the long half-lives that are dangerous because the reactivity mm -hmm. is so low. And so, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> Did you, you remember Terry Rogers? He was on a panel with you here in Ottawa uh, quite a few years ago. It was, uh, it was, he was a professor of uh, mechanical engineering here in Ottawa at Carleton University. And he said that you could hold a used candy reactor bundle in your hands safely after only 400 years. And so, I mean, that's a, a blink of an eye in the le length of time the Canadian Shield is stable. So surely that's a very, very safe solution. Yeah, yeah, it's very safe. Um, if you were looking for 
really, really, really long-term safety that's cheap to handle, take the waste casks out and drop them into the Pacific Trench. Mm. Okay. You know, five miles deep in the water and and, uh, there's nothing going on down there. But the problem with that is why throw away uranium? Now, I mean, if it's just safety, you could do that, but you also want to be able to retrieve the uranium from the yeah is that is that the fast breeder reactors that we talk about that france uses yeah yeah well um in most reactors uh what you depend on is uranium 235 and when the uranium 235 absorbs a neutron it sort of balls up to look a little bit like a, a dumbbell with balls close together and then those two balls fly apart now that winds up being two. I mean, I'm talking about the nucleus, okay? And mm-hmm. it flies apart as two separate atoms, and so each one has, roughly speaking, half as much energy or half as much weight as the uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, uranium two thirty eight uh, doesn't do that. If it absorbs a neutron. Then by one little transmutation, it becomes Neptunium. And then by another transmutation, it's just a radioactive process that takes place. It becomes Plutonium-239, which behaves largely like Uranium-235. So a breeder reactor is one which basically uses that reaction uh, uh, to... Well, you're you're turning uranium two thirty eight into plutonium two thirty nine, and using the U two U two thirty nine as a fuel. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a little bit, uh, a little bit different, but the waste products are just about the same. Yeah. Now, some people talk about the dangers of nuclear weapons proliferation by producing that plutonium. Is that a serious concern, or? Well, um, I think the world has learned how to make nuclear weapons without without the uh, uh, intermediate step of producing power. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. The Chernobyl reactor, by the way, was a reactor built without a containment building. And it, it was a dual purpose thing, provide electricity and provide plutonium for their bombs. That was, oh, is that, right? that was by design. It was a design that uh, was considered verboten in the United States because it was too confounded dangerous. Hmm. And this is kind of interesting. I I discovered recently by uh, on some show on TV that um, uh, when they had a a very similar reactor to the one at Chernobyl uh, up in Leningrad, or what's now St. Petersburg again, they had a problem with it. They had the same problem that they had uh, at the uh, Chernobyl reactor, but they got it corrected. They saw it coming and they got it corrected. But the Soviet security was such that those people in in St. Petersburg could not convey the information to the people uh, at Chernobyl. Wow, that's sad. So they they paid a price for that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, there were something like uh, 
30, low 30s uh, people who were killed uh, trying to uh, drop cement on on onto the reactor. They just flew overhead in, in helicopters and dropped cement just mm -hmm. to encase the uh, the reactor. And they got exposed to a lot of radiation and mm -hmm. they died of radiation poisoning. And there were some kids that wound up with thyroid problems. Mm -hmm. But the, the region around there uh, really has no iodine in the soils. And so uh, the goiter problems were actually fairly common anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how much is it was this and how much was that? We don't know. This, if you have enough uh, uh, iodine in your system, then that little bit that, that's coming around because of the reactor wouldn't bother you. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Yeah. <clears throat> I understand that the kind of reactor fire they had burning the graphite, it simply couldn't happen in North American reactors because we use water or heavy water in the case of Canada, not graphite. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have my students uh, race up to the chalkboard and make a graph of this and the graph of that. We call that a graphite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> graphite. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mary Jean, I think you were going to ask a question. I think we sort of got off on nuclear there for a while. What were you going to ask? Um, yeah, well, we kind of touched on the um, uh, blackouts in Ottawa. So what about uh, some more environmental and ethical concerns about electric batteries? What are some concerns with those? Oh, well, let's put it this way. If you take the output energy from a fairly large power plant, take the energy that produces in a few hours and release it in a millisecond, that's what a hydrogen or what, what the bomb was like in Hiroshima. Oh, wow. Okay. Now that just, just use that for a scale. Now, suppose you are studying or, or you are storing, let's say a couple billion Watts of power multiplied by four days worth of energy. That's a carload of energy and it's sitting there in a battery. What could go wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, no, well, the thing is, now, let, let's suppose that you have a fire in a car. Yeah, you know, just not, not, not an electrical fire, but because something punctured the gasoline tank and, you know, and then things got hot and it burned. Okay. You got a kind of a nasty fire, and what do you do about it? You spray all kinds of water on it to keep it cool, see if you can't get rid of the fire. Now, this is because the fuel is in one place and the oxygen is in another place. You can, it, I mean, the thing that keeps the car from burning up as you go down the road is that the fuel is in a tank and the sheet metal of the tank keeps it away from the oxygen in the air mm -hmm. in a battery you have the oxidizer and the reducer all in one package mm -hmm. all in one thing and it doesn't do any good 
to spray water on it because, I mean, the water you may may keep things a little bit cool, but you're still going to have that reaction going on uh, because the oxidizer is right there with the reducer. So <laughs> uh, you got to be careful with those fires. So I, I think that's that's really a uh, a dangerous uh, dangerous thing. Would you want to park an electric vehicle battery car in your garage? You feel they're very safe from that point of view. Uh, there has been a recommendation that people not put their electric cars in the garage hmm. in this country. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because some electric cars have caught fire because of something that went wrong in the battery. And, uh, and when that, if you've got a, this kind of, fire starting in a garage you're pretty much going to burn down your house mm -hmm. if it's outside so, you know maybe not so that's interesting so here in ottawa it's minus 20 outside and we're saying okay you don't want to park your car in your garage but if i don't park my car in the garage it's too cold to charge the battery <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah there, there is a problem with uh with cold weather and batteries uh and um now I'm not thinking just of uh, of uh, storing it in the garage, but I'm thinking, well, what's the behavior of your battery when you're driving outside when it's 20 below? Uh -huh. And the, the performance of the battery goes way down in cold weather. Mm -hmm. So uh, th th there is a lot of problem. And, you know, you talked about the electric buses. Well, with an electric bus, presumably you could uh, uh, have, well, you'd be heating inside to heat the people and you could take the exhaust air from, from inside the bus and run it through and keep the battery warm. You can do that. And you could with a car too. It's just a mm -hmm. matter of engineering design. But uh, uh, getting from... A cold battery that's well below the freezing point uh, to a warm battery when you're relying on the energy in the battery. Well, you got a certain length of time there when, when you're operating uh, in the kind of unideal conditions. Mm -hmm. For sure. So uh, to, to finish off, did you uh, want to maybe talk about some uh, next projects that you've been working on recently? Oh, let's see. My uh, actually, um, uh, my, my when I talk about a project these days, it's that I have a STEM lab, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, over at a local um, air museum, and we have kids that come through there from cool. time to time, and it's it, we have a lot of fun, and uh, I have some projects in mind to uh, to put over there. I recently had to undergo a big movement from one corner of the hangar over to another corner, and the stuff had to be stored in between. And I came out, and I had a thick layer of dust all over everything. It took a while to get it back <laughs> uh, back into space, and uh, so that's oh yeah. And then I've got another project that I'm going to work on, which is photography. Uh, I do 3D photography. Oh, wow. And How do you uh, do that? Uh, very well, thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, we got to wrap up now, unfortunately. This has been uh, Mary Jean Harris, my co-host. We've been interviewing Dr. Howard Hayden, University of Connecticut, Professor of Physics Emeritus. And it's interesting because he's written some very understandable books for the average person. And I really encourage people to have a look under the podcast and also to subscribe to The Energy Advocate, a monthly newsletter promoting energy and technology. And I should point out, Howard, that's easy to understand, even for the average person, isn't it? Well, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, anyway, thank you so much for being on our show today. That was my pleasure. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Mary Jean, if if only through a machine. (laughs) Yes, so thanks for joining us. Yeah. So this is Tom Harris and host Mary Jean Harris with our guest, Dr. Howard Hayden, signing out from the other side of the story. 